Hello and welcome to the second episode of Digital Discourse uh, ZA. We are honored to have been invited to participate in this um, brand new media channel, which promises to host some open and honest conversations about uh, topics that are relevant to you as South African viewers. Um, so I think we should start by introducing ourselves. Um, so over to you, Luke. Hi, I'm Luke Muller. Firstly, I am Kay's sibling, so we are brother and sister, and I'm sure we'll be having a very open and honest conversation because of that too. But I am an economics lecturer in Durban for the Institute of Independent Education and a freelance writer and economist. Okay, what is your profession? <laughs> so yes, we're a family of economists, so if you like as viewers, you're getting a chance to eavesdrop in on a dinner conversation that we might have as a family um, full of economists. And I Very hope exciting. <laughs> I hope we can hold your attention for more than five minutes. Um, but um, yeah, I'm also an economist by profession, trained in South Africa. I, um, I started my career as a macroeconomist at Rand Merchant Bank around about the time of the the global financial crisis. So I think that was uh, correlation and not causation. Um, <laughs> and then I went on to build and lead the economic consulting capacity um, in Deloitte um, in Johannesburg, where I was for a couple of years before um, starting my own specialist consultancy um, called Nova Economics. And we're currently based in Stellenbosch. Um, I think, yeah, I think we should have a quick chat about the topic we're hoping to discuss. Um, uh, basically, I think Luke and I would like to do a sort of macroeconomic temperature assessment, if you like, of what's happening in South Africa. And we decided that we might focus just on a couple of themes. Um, that the temperature are, is very warm because no one has air conditioning. Yes. <laughs> So a few hot topics and um, that might include, for example, um, electricity production and distribution, um, inequality education, and we'll we'll see how far we get. We might add some others. Um, but yeah, I think if we could maybe with the generators busy humming outside, I think it might be fitting to start with the discussion on the electricity supply industry in South Africa and, and why perhaps we're having load shedding today. Yes, I think that's a good way to start. You're lucky to have generators. Uh, I had to check my load, uh, load shedding schedule just to make sure I could slot this in. <laughs> but um, yeah, it is an amazing um, phenomenon that we've got ourselves into the situation because as far as I know, we have the capacity to produce more electricity at the moment, but we are unable to do so because of maintenance requirements, because of the high costs involved, and I think uh, ESCOM has got itself into quite a situation. And I know, Kay, you have done a lot of research um, for ESCOM and on this topic before. So why is it that we are not able to produce at the 48,000 megawatt capacity? Yeah, so I think that is partly the irony at the moment is that ESCOM in theory has plenty of power capacity. Electricity demand in South Africa has actually been very stagnant growth in electricity demand for, for for much of the past five years. In fact, in some years it's been falling as prices have risen and consumers have responded um, to for, you know, rising prices with electricity um, efficiency investments. Um, so yeah, it's not a question of uh, installed or name uh, nameplate capacity. I think um, the problems at ESCOM are really to do with the lack of cash. Um, so ESCOM at the moment is exceptionally cash strapped. Um, it barely it's barely able to raise sufficient revenue via sales of electricity to cover the interest payments on its debt. And um, yeah, and it's really struggling to do adequate maintenance at its aging coal plants. It's struggling with issues around um, the coal supply chain. Um, it's been hit by some unexpected events like the cyclone in Mozambique, which took out another thousand megawatts of imports from um, Kahurabasa. Um, so it's a whole multitude of complex issues, but they started, in fact, um, decades ago, I would say. The problems at ESCOM have been building up for for several decades. Yes, and I, I, that's sort of one thing I wanted to say is I don't want to 
make excuses for ESCOM because this has been a long time coming. And what I also don't understand is how a national energy regulator wouldn't allow um, a more market-related price to be set for electricity and and help um, the left hand speak to the right hand in this situation and solving the issue. Um, why do you think it is that prices are still so regulated and set for electricity and how do you think um, people will respond to this going forward if prices are now hiked uh, to try and reflect a more market-related price? Um, so yeah, I think ESCOM is the organization that everyone in South Africa loves to hate. And they obviously- no ESCOM half the time. ESCOM. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's very hard to have any position sympathetic to ESCOM, especially since in the last few years, the waters have become very muddied um, with you know serious allegations of corruption, um, particularly since I think Brian Malefe of Saxonwold uh, been fame took over in 2015. So I think it's just become harder and harder to make a, just a, a clear economic case for tariffs to rise until they cover the costs of um, you know of producing electricity. And also there's a history perhaps that we can only really touch on of poor decision-making by ESCOM's management and the related government departments about the, the build program, about how much and what the nature of capacity is that we should build. So, yeah, I mean, like I say, it started three decades ago. There was a panic in the late 1970s about inadequate power capacity. A number of power stations were built and then the government found that there was no demand to you know, take off that supply and um, they, they allowed real electricity prices to fall in real terms for so many years that by 2004 we had the cheapest electricity in the world. And of course by then we were running out of power and government delayed decision making about what uh, the nature of new capacity was going to look like. Um, they were talking of privatizing ESCOM but it wasn't a straightforward process. Prices were so low that no private investor would have been interested. Um, and so eventually in 2008, we ended up back in the situation we were in the late 1970s with a supply crisis and a quick knee-jerk reaction to build two massive mega coal-fired power stations, which ended up being, you know, a disaster. Um, they have just been plagued by problems from the very beginning, maybe overly ambitious, more than we needed. Um, and then, as I say, more recently, allegations of corruption and contracts that were awarded, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so basically the pricing story has been a major theme. Um, and, and this is what tends to happen when you have uh, energy prices that are regulated. Um, you know, you don't have a market reflective price. So you there is a tendency to want to subsidize the energy um, price if you're not able to sell what you've paid for. Um, and so we've been plagued for years in South Africa by this history of of underbuilding, overbuilding, undercharging, and trying to play catch up. Um, it's, quite a, uh, it's quite a pickle that ESCOM's got itself into now because creating a market-related uh, price is also um, now almost impossible with with oversupply of uh, a lot of the hardware, but undersupply of the and the necessary capacity to, to run it and and the cash. So, but my point going forward now would be to say to um, the government, say to the ANC that it is of such great importance to have power uh, continuously supplied in a country because of the massive externalities it creates when you have power cuts. So, um, just off the top of my head, the um, the road accidents with the traffic lights out, the um, supply chains of food going off, uh, the number of uh, businesses that have to shut down during during power cuts, the number of power surges that destroy electronics, the number of costs that it hits society with are astronomical. So it surely would just be worth it for the government to to lay out as much money as is necessary for ESCOM to set itself right just in the short term and then they can focus on creating a more competitive and uh, market related uh, electricity price. 
Yeah, I mean, I must say I agree with you there. Um, so the, uh, President Ramaphosa recently announced that they intend to reform the electricity supply industry and um, to unbundle it into three components. Mm. And that's not a new idea. It's been in the energy white paper since 1998. Um, and it's, it's certainly needed. So basically what they're going to do is separate the parts that can become a competitive you know, uh, supply industry and, and attract private sector investment from the parts like transmission that are a natural monopoly that's suited to being state owned and um, mm -hmm. uh, run by government. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a positive move, but the, the truth is it's not going to solve ESCOM's immediate problems. As you say, the immediate uh, situation is that they call it the cost of unserved energy, but the cost of unserved energy is enormous. And I can't remember, we did some calculations some time back on, on what it actually I've is. I've spent hundreds of rands on candles now. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, direct candles. they're indirect costs, they cost to GDP, there's cost to business confidence. Um, and, 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 and many years back when load shedding first occurred, you know, ESCOM had a policy of just keeping the lights on at all costs, at running open cycle gas turbines, of not doing plant maintenance, because that was the sort of thesis. You cannot afford to let the lights go out, but you also unfortunately cannot afford to, to run your power stations into the ground in the interim. Um, but at the That's moment... I see, I see that they sort of followed the advice of the trying not to create a cost for society, but then the maintenance costs on the plants have now piled up. Yeah, and I think there's a disconnect because, you know, ESCOM's being told, run those open cycle gas turbines full tilt, and then they've been told by the regulator a year later, no, you can't recover the funds for those diesels, uh, the d diesel you use, because you shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. And ESCOM's saying, well, you know, damned if we do, damned if we don't. Um, so you're, we'll just let the lights go off now. The reality is we have no cash. Um, yes. So I think what government needs to do is to step into the breach now. We are in a crisis. The costs are enormous. Um, it's unfortunately got to the situation where your options are fairly nuclear. You either need to hike the tariff sharply, which uh, consumers are certainly not going to. Um, it'll be a very hard sell in the current in environment. An election year. Yeah, election year in, a, in an era where you, ESCOM's been at the center of state capture allegations on top of all its problems. Um, so either that it's it's nuclear options, it's hike the tariffs, or otherwise um, bail in. Here's a fun nuclear option. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I know, very bad. <laughs> we don't want that option. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, basically, government is left with with very few alternatives, and I think the sensible thing to do now would probably be to accept that ESCOM needs a massive equity injection or cash injection, bigger than the 20 billion that was promised in the budget in order to stabilize the organization in the short term and um, to just create some confidence that power supply will be restored. The, the sort of 20, I think it's 20,000 megawatts of capacity we've currently lost to operational issues. Um, that is restored. And the reality is over the medium term, over the next five years, we're going to be back in a situation where ESCOM has way more capacity than the country actually needs. So we're going to move, ironically, from a situation of inadequate capacity to one of significant surplus capacity as those units at Madupi and Kasile come online. And then you've got another whole problem of actually trying to find a market for that power. Um, uh, it's yeah. a, it's an incredible situation, and I think that uh, I think it was 69 billion over three years the government has earmarked. So um, do you not think that that is enough? And I I would say that the government should put whatever is required to get electricity back online because of the cost to, to South Africa as a whole. Um, it's going to be much higher than that, that 69 billion. But do you think that would be enough over the next three years? Um, no. To be honest, I think you need a, a combination of tariff increases that are at least double digit and um, a cash injection. You don't want to subsidize electricity too heavily over the medium term because you're then going to end up in another situation of not being able to attract private sector investment eventually. But I think they could have front loaded that support more heavily to fix the. I mean, clearly it's not sufficient if ESCOM is, is still unable to carry out uh, to purchase diesel, to do adequate plant maintenance, to buy the parts for the, the stations that are broken. Um, so I think they need to do whatever it takes to ensure that ESCOM can 
you know, get back onto its feet within the next year. Um, and then and then focus on the longer term goal of making sure that this doesn't ever happen again, um, reforming the sector. And I think uh, another thing that will happen is with a tariff increase, you will get uh, more private sector investment, even in the decentralized electricity um, supplies such as uh, solar power and with the, with the cost of solar power dropping and uh, battery storage dropping. I think you'll get decentralized options just for uh, business blocks and for um, households. So I think there's going to be a combination of more electricity coming in on that front, just on this very small scale. But uh, at least when you when the electricity tariff is at a reasonable market price and it's not being set by the national regulator at a very low price, then you'll find uh, the market will start to sort itself up. But it is going to be a bit of a mess for a while. It's going, yeah, it's undoubtedly going to be a process, but I think that things can be done if the adequate support is provided and to restore, you know, supply within a year, within a calendar year. Um, and yeah, I mean, there have been some very positive stories in the electricity supply industry, the REIPP process that went well, the very competitive bidding process that brought online a whole lot of renewable capacity. Um, and those have kind of been, yeah, those positive stories have just been overshadowed by the continual problems that have plagued um, ESCOM. But yeah, I think um, if we move off um, the topic of electricity supply, the related topic is um, the, the yeah. rapid increase in government debt burden. Um, <laughs> so I think over the past 10 years, um, partly, yeah, it's, it's, not entirely, but partly due to ESCOM and other state-owned companies, we've seen a rapid um, deterioration in, in South Africa's fiscal health. Um, I just want to clear up uh, something for viewers who, who aren't aware. Um, that I saw an amazing infographic the other day, and it showed uh, government debt to GDP ratios for countries all across the world. And uh, in the center, it has Japan as the most indebted um, with over, well, I think it's close to 200% of GDP um, is, is government debt. Uh, but then South Africa is not looking so bad in that picture because its debt is, uh, government debt to GDP ratio is about 53%. So um, I know, is it the World Bank that, uh, or the International Monetary Fund, they, they uh, specify that less than 60% is sustainable, but that is not the full picture. Um, because of the state-owned enterprises. So people might, in South Africa, might think, oh, we're in not such a bad position. Uh, we've, we've risen from quite a low base. Uh, in 2009, I think it was 30% or 31% of uh, GDP, government debt, and now it's just over 50%, which is a rapid increase, but at least doesn't look that bad. But that's not looking at the full picture, and you have to look at the state-owned enterprises. As well, yeah. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you're quite right that sometimes if you compare us internationally to more developed markets with much higher debt to GDP ratios, we don't look as bad. But then you have to remember we are an emerging market with much higher interest rates, much higher debt service costs. We don't have the luxury of being Japanese and paying close to 0% interest on the debt that we've raised. Um, so the reality in South Africa is even with a debt to GDP ratio of around 50%, I think that was Treasury's estimate for net loan uh, debt to GDP in the latest budget. Um, we are spending 14% of our general government revenue on interest. And we have so many needs in South Africa, so many social needs, um, you know, so many, uh, yeah, for help, for education, for poverty alleviation that we can't really be afford, you know, afford to be spending nearly 15% of, of government revenue every year just on interest. Um, and then in terms of the bigger picture, I mean, as you say, I'm just having a look at some statistics here, but if we include um, our net loan debt provisions and the contingent liabilities, and those contingent liabilities are basically the portion of SOC debt that government has explicitly guaranteed. I mean, obviously government is ultimately responsible for the full bundle, but of that, that it's explicitly guaranteed, our debt to GDP ratio is at currently at 72%. 
and um, National Treasury published some board guidelines in 2008, and they said that that ratio, uh, including contingent liability, shouldn't exceed 50% if you want to be prudent and sustainable. So we're well over that, that self-imposed risk guideline now. Um, and uh, and that's a concern. And as I say, the fact that interest now keeps eating away at our budget that we could more usefully spend on other things. If you compare uh, that we're spending over 200 billion rand resurfacing our, our debt or um, paying off our interest compared to 20 billion on ESCOM, I think that gives you an idea of how drastic that situation is. Yeah, yeah, close to 200 billion a year now. On uh, debt, in the last in the last budget is two hundred nine billion. Yeah, I think it's close to that now. Yeah, so I think it's become a real problem. And I mean, I've also got some statistics somewhere on how much ESCOM contributes. So, um, of our our total contingent liabilities or government guarantees, should I say, are about five hundred billion now. And the electricity sector, which includes guarantees on ESCOM's debt and on IPPs. Um, is around 83% of that. Um, mm. 10 years ago, that number was only 65 billion. So it's increased um, tenfold the, the amount of uh, government guarantees on state owned company debt in 10 years. Um, and, and yeah, and just to give you an idea, I mean, people get concerned about SAA bailouts, uh, about um, you know, support for SAA and guarantees. Well, um, SAA contributes about 4% of that pie and the electricity sector about 83%. So ESCOM, the, the financing of ESCOM's build program has, by government, has, uh, well, the support for it, should I say, has really had a huge impact on some of government's debt uh, metrics and will probably continue to do so um, because they're going to need not only guarantees but explicit um, you know, equity or capital injections to stabilize. Yeah, so I think that has been a large um, part of uh, the whole story of, um, and yes, of course, and I think at the end of this month and in a little over a week, Moody's will be meeting to decide whether or not they're going to keep um, South Africa on an investment grade sovereign credit rating. Um, and that is, yeah, this this kind of whole story of ESCOM and rapid accumulation of debt and government's um, responsibility is, is a big risk highlighted by rating agencies in terms of the overall country sovereign credit rating. Um, I think that's the importance of transparency with government now, that they have to uh, let people know that it is possible to get out of the situation in the next few years and hopefully that that creates some stability going forward. Yeah, so I think when it comes to the sovereign credit rating, I think, yeah, I just wanted to raise this one other important point about ESCOM's tariff increases and the alternative, which is government supporting it through the back door um, mm -hmm. using taxpayers' money, is that um, neither option is particularly good for the economy. So I think what the regulator sometimes doesn't articulate well is for sure, if you you know have double-digit electricity tariff increases every year, it's going to have a harmful effect on the economy. It will slow GDP growth. It will result in some inflation. But the counterfactual, the, alter the only alternative is for government to borrow more in order to fund ESCOM through the back door. And that then in turn has implications for the credit rating. And if we did get downgraded next uh, week um, by the final rating agency that's got us on investment grade, we would see massive outflows of um, capital because we'd no longer be part of these emerging market bond indices. Um, and that would have probably, well, we did the modeling in fact for ESCOM and, it's, and the results suggest the impact on the economy should um, government support Port for ESCOM precipitate a downgrade would actually be more negative or more harmful than 20% um, tariff increases. So, yeah. But it would ironically lower the, the demand for electricity too. <laughs> um, yeah, that's not really our problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh we need to pay for it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so basically, I think it's always important to remember that there's a counterfactual scenario and it's not necessarily more favorable 
than the you know the first option, which is yeah. yeah. So I, I think I think the only the only option for South Africa is they, that the country has to grow to pay for the cost of what has already been installed um, and has to grow in order to pay for ESCOM's debt. And so everything going forward has to be on a growth path with constant electricity supplied. Um, and I think that's, we got to, yeah, we should avoid anything that is going to heavily impede growth, such as the junk st status uh, downgrade. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. So yeah, I guess that then leaves us. So we've been talking um, a lot about how, yeah, this, this problem of rising debt, government debts, SSE debt is now crowding out, is, is leading to a massive interest payment and how 15% of our budget almost now goes towards just uh, interest cost. And I think that leads quite nicely into the, the theme of inequality, um, which is a very persistent theme in South Africa because in order to redress um, inequality, you need, you need budgets, you need innovative social policies, in my opinion, anyway. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'd be interested to hear your views on, um, yeah, the situation in terms of inequality in South Africa, whether you believe that the fact that we've got possibly the highest um, level of inequality represented by the Gini coefficient of any country in the world is a problem, and and what are some of the ways to? I think I think uh, I think we're not as bad as Lesotho, but seeing as we surround that country, uh, I think we can say that we are comfortably uh, near the bottom of the pack. Okay, <laughs> Lesotho, I think in Namibia are neighbours. I think those are two close uh, contenders. Uh, it's a very um, yeah, it's a very concerning situation inequality in South Africa and. Uh, when you, we talk about electricity tariff increases that are necessary, you we also um, we have to realize who this is going to impact. And of course, uh, the poorest of the poor are often the people who take the worst brunt of it. And in South Africa, um, inequality is a very interesting, interesting topic because um, the idea of, of redistribution, um, it's always difficult because when you look at the world as a whole and you look at where the wealth actually lies, uh, you'll see um, Asia, Europe and, and the US or the, the American, North America, um, basically has there's, there's inequality between the, those northern hemisphere um, continents and, and the south um, and, well, and, and Africa especially. So there's, there's global inequality already, and um, you would hope that somehow some of that wealth is redistributed uh, to South Africa because redistributing our own wealth, we're also taking from a much smaller base. So um, in South Africa, there is massive inequality, but you, the richest of the rich, there's actually, it seems ludicrous, but the richest of the rich in South Africa are still not nearly as rich as the riches of the rich elsewhere in the world. So you've got, yes, you've got um, you've got some billionaires, dollar billionaires, but I think there's only about five of them in South Africa now um, compared to hundreds and hundreds uh, uh, in, in other countries. So when you look at a global perspective, redistributing wealth is not as easy in South Africa. So um, I am in favor of things like uh, basic income grants and uh, and providing equal opportunities for people going forward. But you also have, you can't be idealistic in South Africa. You can't say uh, we can just pay for all these things when, we, when we're still battling to pay for our electricity and servicing our debts. So um, redistribu redistribution in South Africa has to be uh, on a sustainable scale at the moment and we have to focus on creating a larger wealthy base to redistribute from. Um, yeah, so I think you've raised some interesting points there. I mean, I've often thought about, I mean, generally these Gini coefficients and a lot of the uh, metrics and inequality tend to focus on inequality within countries. And, um, and I think the reason for that is countries operate almost like gated communities. 
um, once you're in them, they're hard to, you know, it's hard to get in if you're a poor immigrant. Um, as we've seen over the past few years with all the migration problems in Europe and the United States. Um, and it's become a really sensitive and, and sort of fraught topic. Um, but basically, you know, what the literature has proven is that if a society, if, if a country operating like a gated community is, is equal within its borders, and that society tends to be more stable. Um, mm. And, you know, there's definitely strong benefits to having uh, more equality. And it's not saying that you need to be, you know, entirely equal, but that more equal societies are more stable and that that's therefore desirable and something to strive for. Um, but yeah, there is this bigger global pro problem and it's becoming more and more of a problem um, as people become more mobile and the economy becomes more globalized and frustrated poor immigrants trying to escape war um, torn countries and whatnot um, make their way to some of these countries where they're not used to dealing with, um, you know, the issue of global inequality. Um, but if we just revert to the subject of what you can do as a country, as a nation, um, you know, to promote more equality, income equality within your borders, I think um, it's always been fairly obvious that government needs to raise taxes in order to fund or raise some level of tax, have some kind of form of taxation in order to raise revenue, in order to redistribute it. I think the nuances in the last few years have come um, in terms of how you then redistribute that money. So I think if in Thomas Piketty's famous book, um, Capital in the 21st Century, he shows how in the 1920s, generally governments only um, spent 10, 10%, I think, tax revenues were 10% of GDP or something. Um, and that, I hope I haven't got the, the exact numbers wrong, but that rose in some Scandinavian countries to nearly 50%. So it showed how um, the state had to tax more in order to carry out its social policies. But where I think things have changed is the move away from, oh, well, you know, education must be state provided, um, health must be state provided, um, you must have a state-run bank and, you know, your typical socialist state, which have largely failed, to you know, a state-run energy enterprise. Oh yeah, I mean in South Africa we've got a lot of examples of why you wouldn't want state-run mines or state-run auto manufacturers or energy utilities, for example, mm -hmm. um, because you know they tend to be inefficient, unwieldy, they're vulnerable to corruption, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so the it seems that the modern redistributive model is to say, okay. Probably if you had a purely capitalist society, you're not going to see sufficient redistribution to, of income to create equal access to people, to fundamental things like education, health, um, you know, the things that are going to give you the opportunity for social mobility. Um, well, but well, but okay. I mean, I can see the basic income grant or other measures being different from what's been done in the past. Yeah, okay, well, I have uh, just a little bit of a counter argument there where um, there's there's two two theories I want to draw on. Uh, one is um, the theory of externalities that you touched on earlier. So nobody wants to live in a society with desperate people, even if it is a capitalist society where people um, where people privately own the means of production. And even in that society, if you have a very um, uh, high inequality, it's going to impact on everyone's life. Okay, so nobody wants to see people suffering in their society. Nobody wants to have people with no education in their society. Everyone would want to, and any rational person would want to uh, uplift the lower stratas of society. And, and I think that is definitely the case in South Africa. People often don't know where to start. Um, there are a lot of good initiatives out there where people are trying. And um, I do believe that if you look at societies where uh, there's high income mobility, so where people's basic needs are catered for, and someone, um, even if they're born in a very poor household, has the ability to, to still receive an education and get the, their basic nutritional needs uh, and uh, basic needs met, 
then yes, then they can leapfrog um, into uh, high income levels. But the the idea of um, redistribution to to alleviate these externalities is very important one, and, and South Africans must understand that and um, do their best to to uh, try and uplift the. Don't leave it purely up to government to redistribute the wealth because they don't always know how to do it best. That's my opinion. You can give out social grants, but and you can government tries to provide. Uh, basic education to everyone, but I still think it's going to be um, in, in people's better interest to to have something like a basic income grant where they can actually access, uh, if someone's born a, a, a poor household, they can access some uh, basic um, private education as some poor countries have shown where even uh, uh, private schools have been embraced, at, even at lower income levels, where they pay very low fees uh, in other African countries. So if you look at situations like that, I think we're not going to be able to rely on the government to do the redistributing for us entirely. So I would say there is a need for uh, the private sector to come forward and do it. And I think there is also um, a lot of motivation to do that, to to uplift and make everybody's lives better, to live in a society where people are better off. Um, so, yeah, I think you have more faith in the private sector than I do to redistribute income. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would argue that no, you, you can't really leave it up to individuals and to private sector companies who do, not to say they should discontinue corporate social responsibility initiatives, not to say that people should discontinue charitable projects, but I think the most efficient way or the most, you know, the, the way that's tried and tested um, and is most effective at reaching everybody is for government to centrally collect tax revenue and um, to redistribute it as equally and as directly as possible uh, to to everyone, um, without limiting their their personal freedom of choice. So you don't want to be in a situation where you raise a lot of tax revenue and you spend it all on an inefficient national health insurance scheme that limits people's choices about how they access healthcare. So that for me would be a poor form of redistribution. And I agree with you that a far better one would be to say, okay, well, you know, the most efficient and effective way to do this is to raise tax revenue. Centrally, it's compulsory, it's hard to avoid. And then to basically just redistribute it fairly equitably to everybody who needs it, not to sort of pick and try and pick and choose winners um, and winner programs or winner initiatives, just to, to send it directly to everyone in that country who is a citizen and to basically give them the choice of accessing the fundamental things they need to improve their lives and to have the prospects of social mobility um, and to let that be privately provided. So. If I was, say, um, one day in South Africa receiving a basic income grant of a couple of thousand rand a month, and um, I could then, as a mother, choose whether I spend that on school fees at a private school for my children, or if I take out a medical aid scheme of my choice to cover their healthcare cost, it doesn't limit my freedom as an individual, but it does help to level the playing field in a society um, where it's very clear that people um, don't have access to, you know, equal access to opportunity. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in favour of the big income grant, but it has, there's been limited, um, well, the idea of it, the concept of it, it seems fair and administratively efficient, um, you know, and unlikely to cause distortions if everyone is getting it. Um, it's not going to, you know, therefore discourage some people from working or to game the system. Um, but the question, I guess, then is, is it really affordable? I mean, do you create an expectation then that, you know, um, this is the level of support that government is going to provide and they have to then be under pressure to meet the revenue? Yeah, I guess it would, it would have to be bought in slowly and you'd have to scale back on other forms of redistribution at the same time um, yeah, to help fund it. Yes. But, uh, but uh, just, just touching on, um, I do believe uh, in in the theory. Uh, there's a philosopher Robert uh, Nozick, and he uh, basically says that um, there's there's three main principles of 
um, a principle of, principle of justice and acquisition that you should be allowed to acquire things that other people don't have in sight as long as it doesn't put them in a worse off position than they were before. And you should, uh, the principle of justice and transfer, you should be allowed to transfer what you have to somebody else as a gift or a bequest um, with the same principle as long as it doesn't make someone else worse off than before. Um, but then there's the, the third principle, which is a rectification of injustice. So if you do make other people worse off than before, there should be uh, redistribution allowed in society, even if it's a, f a free market society. So I do believe in that redistribution, but it's uh, such an ideolo idealistic philosophy because in South Africa, to try and address all the injustice of the past, um, looking as far back as, as one possibly can and to do it accurately is almost, it's just an impossible, impossible task um, to do. So I think the more blanket approach of that basic income grant where at least you know you're getting to everyone, even if you're not getting to, uh, you know, you're never going to be able to rectify things and create a situation where things are uh, the way they should have been um, had there not been all this past injustice. So that's why I, I'm also in favor of this idea of a basic income grant, very simple um, and one where it doesn't take a lot of uh, bureaucratic processes and you remove these thousands of other redistributive bureaucratic processes. I know um, someone at the moment who, who uh, is trying to claim from UIF and oh my goodness, you cannot believe the amount of paperwork and the, uh, the processes you have to go through to try and prove that you are a person who has lost their job and needs the money. Um, and yeah, say, from personal experience, I, I also tried to claim a maternity benefits and never, never succeeded after no. several weeks of paperwork and paying no, a third God. party as well. So, you know, there's it's no wonder there's a surplus in that fund because uh, no one, not even someone with a master's degree is able to <laughs> access the benefit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can quite... I, I'm certainly never going to fall pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I gave up, I finally gave up hope this year. I thought, no, it's, it's really not worth the time. And I think so many people do. And that's exactly it. If you are going to have re like social protection programs, if you are going to try and redistribute, um, I think fortunately technology has made it so much easier to do this, to reach every individual and every ind indigent community, you know. And we've seen that, um, okay, there's been a mixed experience with the social grants um, program, but basically it is possible to um, to reach people via technology quite at quite low cost and yes. distribute and to, and to prove that people are who are they who they are uh, you could definitely with today's modern technology make sure that you don't make errors and have ghosts um, yeah identification is helping and there are various you know layers of um, proofing that you can go through now um, and I think yeah all these new banks that South Africa is um, you know, these innovative new banks that are mainly um, mobile or, or, or internet based have very little actual uh, physical footprint are showing that you can open, if you can open a bank account remotely without um, appearing in a, in a physical branch, then it's, it's fairly easy nowadays with financial innovation to actually distribute something like this cost effectively. Whereas in the past, it probably would have been quite costly and difficult to do. Um, so I think it's an exciting space. I think I've, I, I only know of a few pilots. I think one was done in Namibia, one in Finland, um, one in India. Um, but I think the popularity or, or sort of the interest in the, in the concept of a big basic income grant as a, a main tool for redistribution is increasing. And I think for me, I think um, I probably identify as um, as a social democrat, which is maybe only a term that Americans are familiar with, but that's basically saying you want, you know, you want the ownership of capital, etc., to be in the hands of the private sector, but you want some tools to regulate and and uh, the private sector activity and to redistribute to ensure there's some income to ensure there's social justice that you can level the playing field, which is a complete departure and, and transparency. And transparency, and it's a complete departure from the old-fashioned socialism, which was saying, you know, you want state-owned everything to ensure that things are 
are equal. You know, someone like me would be saying firmly, no, 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 um, we do not want the state running mines or banks, um, but we do want to see social justice. We realize equality is important and some regulation might be necessary to get an optimal result um, where there are market failures, etc. So talking about, um, so just talking about the technologies required for something like a basic income grant, I, I think we can maybe just touch on uh, one of South Africa's uh, success stories is that we've had this growing um, internet usage in South Africa and, and growing penetration of uh, households that have access to the internet um, and smartphone usage, which I think are tools that will definitely help um, redistribution and uh, education going forward if they are used efficiently. I know countries like Kenya have managed to have very high levels of um, internet uh, penetration because everyone there has um, basically got access through their, their, their smartphones and um, they have really embraced uh, payments and a lot of functions um, with, with smartphones and I would like to see South Africa move in that direction and I think it is happening uh, but at a gradual more gradual pace than a country like Kenya but um, what are your, your thoughts on on internet access in South Africa? Um, yeah so that's an interesting one I mean a while back I was involved in some projects where the public sector was interested in rolling out broadband and I have to say that most of the projects of that nature in South Africa have been unmitigated disasters whereas the private sectors forged ahead and rolled out quite a lot of um, you know fiber, cell phone coverage and um, etc etc. Um, so I think I mean it's yeah there's been amazing it's been amazing the telecommunications sector and especially mobile internet has been an amazing success story in South Africa. I think one of the reasons perhaps that um, people didn't move as quickly to mobile banking and money transfers etc was that we had more established and very good financial traditional financial services providers the big four banks whereas Kenya had very little in that area um, so there was less of an alternative if you like. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, improving, I mean there's still a lot of people in South Africa who don't really have fantastic internet access. Um, they probably buy data on their smartphones and it's fairly costly still. Um, but I think yeah, when we looked at the public sector rationale for investing in broadband infrastructure, it was really to recognize that they can play an important but limited role. They basically need to build highways to underserved areas where areas that are not commercially viable for the private sector to lay the main fiber connections, if you like, and not to operate them, not to you know try and become telecommunications providers, um, but just to basically fund the, the highway, the basic infrastructure, and then allow, provide incentives for the private sector to then go and do the last, you know, mile connections into townships with innovative technology, be it wire mesh or, um, you know, cell phone towers or 4G or whatever the technology might be. So I think there's still yeah, in countries where the government has successfully invested, it's been that kind of investment, sort of highways to underserved areas um, and also programs, um, both on the government's to make people's lives easier, you know, provide government services over um, the internet, make it easier for people to interact with government. Um, Make it easier for people to have Skype conversations. <laughs> yes, um, lower the cost of, you know, carrying out basic business activities or, you know, everyday activities, um, purchasing bus tickets, whatever it might be, you know, um, and there are plenty of innovative things that government could do there um, on the sort of more on the, the, the connecting people to services um, and reducing the cost for them using um, technology and, and better internet access. And yeah, an obvious one was also um, connecting schools. I think it's a great shame that into 
days um, in this day and age that not every school in South Africa has internet yet. I think that's a really realistic and possible goal with the right public sector um, program. Uh, every child should be able to send their selfies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I saw that WhatsApp and YouTube are, are the most heavily used social media um, platforms in South Africa at the moment. Um, uh, or maybe Facebook, if you included Facebook Messenger and Facebook together, um, it's also up there. But uh, I know that it certainly aided uh, communication. And even though um, it may not at this, you may not think that YouTube is such a great education channel. Um, it certainly there are the basis there for education to take place, more education and, and children or um, or anyone actually who has access to a smartphone these days should be able to access more information and education than they ever have before. So it's there for the taking, but um, obviously uh, there are language barriers and there are other issues where South Africans will um, have to become um, more, more, given time, there will be more technical literacy in that sphere. So I think it's going to open many more doors in that area too. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a positive place for us to end probably <laughs> our, our conversation. But yeah, I definitely think um, there's a lot of um, seamlessly uninterrupted fiber conversation. Yes, <laughs> for education innovation in South Africa. Um, I think there's a lot more government can do sensibly to partner with the private sector to to extend access to schools and learning places and to provide relevant content. Um, and that could really, you know, in the short term, produce some great gains in terms of education quality. Um, yeah, so we did never really got to the theme of ed education, but perhaps that's a topic for another day. Um, my, my coffee's gone cold, I can't continue. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm now in the spotlight with the sun, so. <laughs> seems the sun is setting on this conversation. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'd really like to thank um, yeah, Digital Discourse um, ZA for giving us the, the opportunity That's to, it. the platform, yeah, to have this um, conversation. And there thank should you. be many more. <laughs> okay, goodbye.